Welcome to the Kim Kim Podcast, where we share travel stories from all over the world. We learn from our local experts, travelers, and travel entrepreneurs. Travel is our way of life, and we aspire to inspire more people to travel to interesting places and to have memorable experiences. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 10th episode of the Kim Kim Podcast. Today, I have Ben Ayers on the show, and he's been living in Nepal for the past 18 years and is the director of the Z Foundation, which is a, a grassroots organization that works hand-in-hand with local communities in Nepal. So, uh, Ben, thanks for uh, taking some time to be on the show. Yeah, no, Alex, it's my pleasure. It's good to talk. Great. So, uh, maybe we can just pick up what we were uh, talking about before we started and... Um, you were saying um, just a bit about your background. Yeah, no, totally. We were just kind of chatting about you know Nepal and life in general. But I've been here now for about eight, almost eighteen years. Uh, Nepal has pretty much consumed my adult life. You know, I came out when I was a, a student in college, and then uh, basically fell in love and kind of configured my life so that I could be here. Um, you know, as much as possible uh, ever since. And yeah, the time has flown by. I can't, I can't believe myself that I've been here this long. But uh, I think that's a real testament to the place and the country that it's, you know, it's still just as new and exciting and fresh as it was like, you know, the first time I stepped off the airplane in uh, 98. Well, uh, what did, in 98, when you first came there, what did you... What were you, did you just come as a traveler and stay for a bit, or, or what did you do when you first got there? Yeah, I came um, as a, a student on a study abroad program. Uh, I was in my junior year in college, and I, you know, I was a climber. I was attracted to Nepal uh, for the Himalayas and that kind of stuff. And so I, it was a, a way for me to learn the language and experience the culture a little more intimately, and you know, also a way to get out of. Uh, get out of New England for a few months. And that, that experience completely changed my life, you know, and by the end of it, um, you know, it was clear to me, uh, that Nepal was something that I very much wanted to, um, devote my life to. And I guess at that point I didn't understand that it would take, uh, occupy as much space in my identity and my being as it has. But it was obvious to me by the end of that first six month trip here that, um, I, I, I had unresolved business here and I, I knew that I needed to come back and wanted to come back. And then that return trip, you know, turned into another trip, turned into another trip and, and sort of organically, um, I've been here ever since. Wow. And, and um, are you there for year-round, or do you have to leave every, every once in a while, or how yeah, does that... Yeah, no, I mean, from, I'm here full-time, um, yeah. and ha- have been for the past about nine years or so. Okay. Um, before that, uh, in the, uh, the first years that I was working here and running uh, a different organization that kind of preceded Z for me, uh, I was back and forth, you know, trying to raise funds in the States and so on and so forth. But thankfully, with um, with Z and our registration and so on and so forth, uh, I'm able to get a visa to live here permanently. Great. And um, you said this last year has been sort of um, up in the air since you're in the earthquake. Your, your home was damaged and um, you've been um, sort of picking up the pieces since then. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's... Um, 
in the earthquake, the yeah, the home that I lived in uh, was damaged beyond repair. You know, I lived out of a tent in the yard for well over a month. Um, but a lot of us did back then. You know, it was it's funny to say back then. I mean, it feels like a feels like an you know um, a lifetime ago. And uh, yeah, and so then we just had this this crazy kind of um, how to describe it. The year I just had, was so full of energy, uh, both in terms of working on the reconstruction efforts, um, both trying to keep up with like the media and also with the growth in um, importance for our work to try to capitalize on the fundraising opportunities that came up that, that would allow us to do all the work that we've been able to do since the earthquake. And just all of that has been just incredibly um, time busy, you know, right. and uh, but great as well. And um, I mean, I, I'd love to hear a bit more about what exactly uh, you guys do. And I know you have a bit of a unique approach to, to development and um, sustainable, you know, projects. I'd love to, to hear a bit more about about that. Yeah, totally. Um, so at the at the Z Foundation, you know, our our approach to development is different than sort of what we see the conventional approach um, to development is in the sense that our um, our organization is structured for us to really be accountable to and to work in what we see as like a true partnership uh, with the communities um, that we focus on. And so kind of to, I'll walk you through it and, and, and I'll try to give you the three minute explanation. It'll probably run into five, but we, uh, so at Z basically we work in these extremely remote communities in Eastern Nepal. These are communities that are, when I first started working there, were five or six days from a road. Um, the roads are getting closer, but still haven't reached our communities directly yet. They're now about a day, day and a half out. Um, but these are areas that are neglected by the traditional aid um, process and by the government, just given the remoteness and the poverty um, right. that's, that's there is exacerbated because of that. And our, the way that we work is instead of having a certain, um, a certain sectoral focus or having a certain focus on a type of intervention, and then trying to do that in a lot of places, you know, a lot of NGOs, a lot of um, aid organizations put a lot of emphasis and weight on the idea of scaling, meaning you take one idea and you use sort of a entrepreneurial model that takes that idea and tries to do it in as many places as possible. And our approach at Z is actually quite the opposite, where we try to focus on, you know, one area and spend a really long time um, working with the communities and trying to respond to the needs that the communities identify, uh, regardless of what those are. And so we try to really look for, uh, you know, we call like what we do, like deep development. We try to look at this really deep coverage over a long term that we really feel is the only, only way or the best way to get sustainable, you know, it's an overused term, but to really actually look at creating change that will last beyond our tenure there, but also change that will last, um, for you know generations in those communities and to really kind of change the actual um situation there in in a way that the communities um have decided for themselves has this been a an approach that has evolved over the years at sea or or i mean if you've been you've been there for many years is it uh 
I, I guess this has come to to been uh, to be sort of the most um, sustainable approach for you guys. Yeah, I mean it's totally evolved. You know, Z Z um, as an organization has also you know existed since 1998. It was founded by um, a gentleman and and his his wife at the time uh, in Colorado, who were um, Jim Nowak and Kim Reynolds. They were mountain climbers that wanted to give back. And you know, in the beginning, the Z programs were kind of all over the place, you know, and um, supported a lot of different projects that ranged from girls' homes in Kathmandu to a bunch of different, you know, small projects all over the the middle hills of the country and even some in India. And you know, the way that Z as an organization has evolved is, um, you know, over the eighteen years that Z's been around. You know, Jim and the board of directors and stuff, we've ref- kept refining our methodology. And I came, I started working for Z in 2007. And when we started working together, we really started increasing our focus on this one area of, of um, eastern Nepal. And then even with, within the communities that we work at in eastern Nepal, we've also refined our ability and the way that we... Uh, work with the communities. Um, we've also built up our project expertise. You know, in the beginning, it was a lot of school buildings, but now we're really looking at you know much larger income generation projects. Yeah. Um, looking at much more complicated projects like um, you know sanitation, and then those projects are tied into income generation and agriculture through using like um, new technologies like urine recycling and. Looking at school projects, you know, the way that we build schools has changed tremendously as well. Um, whereas in the beginning, we weren't, we relied upon sort of local engineering and expertise. But now, yeah. of course, we're looking at, you know, earthquake proofing, which is, which is, you know, things that the communities don't necessarily have an indigenous understanding of, but are very excited about helping with, you know. And so the whole methodology has kind of, we've grown with the communities, and that's one of the real benefits of our long-term approach is that we've um, stuck around long enough to make mistakes and then to be able to learn from and correct those mistakes. Right. And that's how, that's how as an organization, um, I think we've really gained our effectiveness or create, you know, or, or earned our effectiveness. And you can't do that when you have a three year project cycle, or if you're only focused on say building libraries or doing one approach. You know, right? And when you meet with these communities, I guess over the years, is it easy to sort of target and identify what the main priorities are and what's needed, or is that does that also take quite a bit of time? Yeah, no, it does. I mean, the way that the way that we work is we we start very small. Um, so when we when we when we kind of ta- um, partner with a new community. Uh, even that process for us, you know, is initiated by communities. We only work in areas that we've been invited into. And then we know that we have, you know, at least an eight or nine year um, commitment to those communities. And so it's a very serious thing for us in terms of our own fundraising capacity and our ability as an organization to really take on that long-term approach. And so once we move in, or once we, you know, start working, we start with projects that don't exceed $500. And we help the communities on a neighborhood level do a lot of these small projects, and you build up from there. So the 
the way of that we help communities identify and propose and initiate projects is sort of a learning by doing model. And we start with projects that communities are really excited about, that, but that don't have massive budgets. And there's a low risk um, in the beginning for, for both us and the communities. And it allows us to kind of get to know each other and to work together and to correct mistakes before they get huge. And then also what you see is as we've worked in more and more communities, you know, right now we work um, in, but, you know, by the end of next year, we'll be, we're taking on two new ones this year. So by the end of next year, we'll have nine different communities that we're working in with a population of, you know, almost 40,000 people. Um, in those communities, you, the, they're all in a contiguous area. So the neighbors see, you know, oh, the Goodell has toilets. Oh, Goodell just did this really interesting open plastic-free thing where they banned plastic and littering, you know, and so right. those ideas catch on from one community to another. There's an awful lot of sharing and an awful lot of collaboration as well. So it, it has sort of a life of its own. Yeah. Yeah. It's organic in a way. It's uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, so are these the kind of projects that people get involved with, you know, people coming to Nepal or, and joining when they get there or it's something they, they contribute to from home and then um, they follow along or how does that work? Yeah. You know, our approach is um, very much, we focus on um, really mobilizing communities to participate and, you know, our, our, our whole belief is, you know, our whole structure is around, you know, working with community members themselves and really harnessing their expertise and their capabilities and their, their, um, their contributions. And so, you know, last year, for example, you know, we had like, um, I'd have to look at to get the exact numbers, but something in the neighborhood of 14,000 days of labor contributed by community members to Z wow. projects. And that's great. At, yeah, and as a as a single group, if you look at the the, con the local contribution to our projects valued at local rates, which is about five or six dollars a day for labor, um, the, our community the community members are our largest single donor, um, and so we really focus on being accountable to them. What that does is it doesn't leave a whole lot of room um, for foreign volunteers. And we feel that that's actually an important part of our approach. You know, I think a lot of times volunteer programs are structured um, rightfully towards providing an experience for foreign volunteers, and that's a great thing. But for us, we find that foreign volunteers aren't really good laborers. You know, they don't have the local language skills. They don't necessarily... Um, have the what it takes to really work within our model, whereas local communities obviously have <laughs> all that local relevance. So we don't tend to work with foreign volunteers much. I think my my perspective on that, you know, the way that we do when we do bring out supporters to see our work and in the communities, it's much more about um, having uh, our donors and our supporters celebrate what the communities have done. And, and, and really, it's, it's more about like an honest exchange and conversation. And it becomes more like a cultural experience and a trek, which I think myself is the greatest way that foreigners can contribute to Nepal, is to simply have an experience there and to them enrich themselves and to fall in love with the country, you know, in the way that I did on my first trip yeah. that, that wasn't volunteer-based. It was about really getting to know people on a human level, understanding and falling in love with the place, you know, and contributing to the economy directly. And so instead of having a, 
a, a one-week volunteer experience where you paint a school, um, you instead have, you know, a really incredible experience where you build friendships, you build relationships, you create, Nepali, you know, you, you, you kind of find a family or whatever. And then that translates into five or six trips over yeah. the next 10 years. And that has a much more, um, in my opinion, a much more direct impact upon the well, country. It's a, a great point, Ben. And I, I mean, I can, I can really relate to that as well. It's more of, um, it's an attitude and forming a relationship and having an experience that just profoundly impacts you and um, brings you back to the place and makes you care about it and the people there. So, uh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, practically speaking, how do you, you know, how does someone go about that other than just coming with sort of an open attitude and and an open mm-hmm. mind? I mean, are there there's the typical tricks that everybody does in Nepal, but I guess right. I mean. Uh, you can still have that kind of experience on, I'm sure, in Manaslu, Everest, you know, Everest, Annapurna, but there's probably other treks or other experiences that it's just that that's, those things are more likely to happen or those relationships and um, those experiences. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's it's the kind of thing where I think, um, you know, I don't want to be totally like knocking volunteer experiences. It's just what, in, you know, in my perspective, um, a lot of times the volunteerism model um becomes a bit token. And I think that, that people who are interested in contributing shouldn't discount um, their own enjoyment uh, as a contributor to Nepal. You know, that's that's what the, yeah. the, 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 the statement that I would make. And so then it's a question of, you know, for a traveler, like how do you how do you um, find that enjoyment? How do you create that experience for yourself? And then, and then that just becomes about good travel planning. And some people, you know, the, the, the Everest region, the Annapurna region, those are very developed areas. They're very popular. Um, the experience you'll have there will be less cultural. Um, and also those are areas that are less, um, less impoverished uh, than most of the other parts of the country. So ways, you know, if you're going to go to one of – my advice for trekkers who, are, who want to go to one of those areas is, like, that's a great first trip to Nepal because it's relatively – you know, Nepal can be challenging for travel. And it's, it's when you are stuck in Lukla waiting for an airplane to get to Kathmandu for three days, you know, which is like the classic Everest experience. You can drink yeah. cappuccino and watch BBC there. And, like, that's – Kind of, there's, yeah. You can get some solace in that, and that's cool. You know, for your first trip, that's a that's a great thing. Um, so I would encourage people who are going to the more popular trekking routes to really, you know, hire porters, work with work with trekking companies, and work with local guides, and get over that that sort of feeling that you have to carry your own stuff or you're somehow not accomplishing what you set out to do. You know, get to know a porter. You know, sing and dance and laugh with with him or her. And pay them really well, you know, tip them like crazy and tip them directly. Um, you know, don't pass it through the guide just to be sure that you have that, that they're getting what, you know, you, 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 um, what you mean to give them. And also you have that direct eye to eye exchange and way to say thank you. Um, you know, that would be kind of, that's like the gateway trek, you know? And then after that, a lot of trekkers want to do, or more ambitious trekkers want to do things that are more off the beaten path. And there's a lot of those trips, you know, there's a lot of like the Jiri to Everest route is still amazing. The Arun from the East route where you walk from Tumlingtar, you can tea house trek that and it takes you up. You know, you don't, you don't even have to go up into the Everest region. You can walk from Tumlingtar across to Faflu and go back to Kathmandu. You still get great mountain views. You know, there's a lot of 
there's a lot of resources on the internet and out there about these other trips. You know, Manaslu is super cool. Um, the west of Nepal, Humla, uh, Jumla, Dolpo, those areas are still more or less unexplored. Right. And those kind of real adventures that you want to have where you're out for 30 days or you're out for eight days and you never see another foreigner. Like there's, there's a lot of opportunities for those. And so for that, the, the, the trick then becomes about choosing the right trekking company, choosing the right partners on the ground. You know, and there's, there's ways you can do that through the Internet if you know people who have trekked in Nepal before and, uh, you know, look for references, do your research. And don't always go for the cheapest, you know. Um, go for the go for the company that has the best reputation, and go for the company that you know puts the emphasis on treating its workers well. Because again, you know, a part of your objective in coming to Nepal is, is to help the economy there. You don't want to necessarily skimp on the price of your trip. Um, you don't necessarily want to skimp on services either, because you may as well enjoy yourself yeah. and like have have the ability to carry the extra jacket and, and, and the extra novel that you just want to hang out at base camp and read. Yeah, com- completely agree. And oftentimes it's not that much more, you know, expensive. It's, uh, you know, it can be a matter of a few hundred dollars and you get that, that much more sort of safety. Um, a great, it just it ensures a great experience with the agency. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and I think that there is that there is sort of this equation where when people travel to Asia, they sort of become a little bit paranoid about getting ripped off, you know, and everybody sort yes. of feels that you have to bargain to the absolute bottom um to be able to, you know, have an authentic experience or something. And and that and that's a dangerous perspective, you know. Right. I think that the reality is, is if the experience is being offered at a price that you think is worth, that experience is worth, um, that's, you know, that's, that's really where the conversation should begin and end. Do you, do you guys offer any kind of trips that people can go on uh, as part of the work that you guys do or no? Yeah, we do. You know, and it's something also that we're looking into more in the future. Um, I lead sort of these custom trips for uh, donors and, and potential donors for Z, you know, and for us, they they are centered around sort of a fundraising endeavor, yeah. you know, and that's a that's another sort of piece of the equation of how you help Nepal is, you know, it's it's kind of like the, le- the, 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 the least sexy, but the most important way is to, you know, it's, it's, it's finding resource. And one of the things that allows us at Z to do the work that we do to respond to needs of communities is having individual donors that understand our mission and are willing to contribute um, to our projects with an open mind and, and themselves being willing to trust the communities um, and, and to support a wide variety of projects. You know, a lot of traditional donors, grant writing and stuff is very much based around a very linear and a very singular approach. Um, to, um, to to projects, which doesn't allow us the flexibility to work with communities. So that being said, one of the right. ways that we raise those funds is is through leading treks and stuff like that. And and, and go ahead. Oh, these are treks to the to eastern the eastern communities that you work in, or yeah, exactly. Okay. And we do yeah. like I'll, I'll lead trips that go from like you know seven to ten days, and it's completely in the areas where we work um, in the. You know, eight years I've been leading these trips. We've seen a few foreigners just by chance in those areas. Um, very, very remote, very cool, very integrated with the communities. We stay 
um, in people's homes. You know, we, we camp in tents in the yard. Um, and we basically just go and visit old friends and learn about what communities, you know, the community members themselves are very eager to sort of show off all the cool stuff they've done. So it's a really different and interesting and a very uniquely integrated approach. Um, so right now those are very limited just because of our time is limited and we, we kind of, um, you know, use, use them again as vehicles to raise really much needed funds for what we do. But, you know, I'm pursuing looking at working with other trekking partners and other companies in the future so that we can also, um, offer these to a wider sort of spectrum of people, um, and it doesn't have to be so focused on simply generating, you know, funds. Um, and the areas where we work in are, they're incredible in terms of trekking. I mean, it's the best trekking I've done anywhere in Nepal. And the communities are really eager to see more tourism and to see more people coming out, um, both contributing to the local economy, but also just, you know, locals there are just pretty open and friendly and pretty psyched about having, you know, sharing uh, their world with other people. So it's it's one of our objectives, too, in the long run, is to try to develop those areas that's for great. sustainable tourism. But it's a that's a much more complex process that will take us a number of years. Yeah, that's great. I mean, this is kind of a loaded question, I guess, but obviously as tourism uh, comes more into a region and um, tea houses get it put up and then eventually roads come in that must have a pretty big effect on the community and there must be a huge contrast between the communities that you're trekking through and the ones that uh, are in the main mainstream trekking areas in Nepal. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. the difference the difference is night and day. You know, I mean, you... You know, it, it, one of the things is, you know, when you go into the Everest, you know, the kids, they, they'll say namaste to you, you know, but they'll also, they you know, it's hello, one pen, or the kids, you know, they... they, they and this doesn't knock that experience, but you know, from from a trekker's experience, you 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 know, in the average region, you're aware that you are one of hundreds of people who have passed through even that day. Whereas out in our areas, you know, you're one of a few dozen people that have passed through these communities ever, and the the relationship you can establish with the communities is very different. Part of it is the novelty of it. Um, but, you know, as you mentioned, you know, with the roads being developed, um, that's sort of happening independent of trekking and tourism. That's sort of just part of the general modernization of Nepal and the general sort of march of, of time and progress. Um, yeah. But as lodges and stuff get built, yeah, the cultures, they, they do change slightly. But I think one of the things that's important for us to remember is that the cultures don't necessarily become worse. You know, they just change. And they integrate with the global world. And that's an inevitable process. And it's a process that the communities have embraced much better than we have. You know, we kind of do want, one of the things we have to be careful about is, is and something that we've seen massively here after the earthquake is sort of disaster tourism. And that's, the volunteer process does become a part of that, is that you do want, there is poverty tourism where people want to go and see things that are, right. you know, shocking and terrible. And the communities don't necessarily want to show that off, you know, and what you see in the Everest region is a community, the Sherpa community there has has gone from being some of the poorest per capita income people in the country to some of the wealthiest per capita. And that's a great triumph for people. And you do see the cultural institutions in the Kumbu, the monasteries, the quality of life there is fantastic for people. And, and the monasteries are more well-preserved than they ever have been. And that for tourists is not... It's also a great experience, and the scenery is incredible. And, you know, it's when I've gone trekking, when I do go trekking in the Everest region, like, I miss the um, 
the authenticness, the strangeness of the remote areas. But I also really don't mind the cappuccino between you and me. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. It's uh, pretty nice and empty bizarre there to sit down. And we were based out of there for three weeks this spring, and um, we did some work, and it's uh, pretty surreal just having coffee and, and using the Wi-Fi from the view of Everest. <laughs> I know. I know, and it's one of those things where, like, you can get into, like – decrying and all the old timers here and I'm still guilty of it you know I'm like oh you know I remember when Kathmandu didn't have any traffic lights like you know what I mean like you get into this I've been here long enough now that you get kind of self-righteous about how awesome things used to be but you know that everybody does that you know everyone's talking about how awesome America used to be you know um and one of the things is like you got, you got to embrace the craziness and the wildness and the wonder of the world, and that's what travel's about. It's not just about step going to a museum. Travel is about you know experiencing a place that's in a unique moment in time, and that's how you're enriched, and you're enriched in a real way because. Man, you know, our, our world is a place where Namche Bazaar has Wi-Fi, and it's crazy, and it's wonderful, and it makes us also think about our relationship to our devices in a kind of profound way that we wouldn't get otherwise. Because in New York, it's no big deal to be looking at your phone, but when Mount Everest is looming over you, you kind of feel a little weird about looking at your phone, and that's a good experience. Yeah, that's no, true. So um, being living in Kathmandu and being there for so long, what are some of the... Um the challenges both, you know, personally and also with uh, Z. I mean, there must be some difficulties. Yeah. I mean, Kamandu is like simultaneously, um, the most like beautiful and terrible place in the world, you know, and living here, you know, it's, I, I guess part of what I've really loved about Nepal and what has, drawn me here and kept me here has been the, the incredible energy that comes out of those extremes and the hardships are, are real you know like the pollution in Kathmandu is absolutely terrible um, it's not the most polluted city in the world but it's certainly amongst you know um, a few very polluted cities it's not a great thing um, the the fact that there's not like reliable electricity that you know, the infrastructure is terrible that Nepal, you know, undergoes very frequent political um, moments of political instability and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it's a total drag. That's that that kind of thing. You know, get, getting typhoid fever is like not, you know, it's not an experience that I want to repeat, but might, you know. And but that's to me, you know, part of the um, the, 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 the price of admission here. And to me, it's worth it. You know, it's a choice that I've made with open eyes because, on the other hand, in Kathmandu, there's always something crazy and wonderful. And there's a 16th century chariot being dragged through the streets like you're late for work because there's some spontaneous Nawari festival in the in the old cobbled streets of downtown Patan. And I have more moments living in Kathmandu that I just think I'm so lucky to be here and to see this and to experience this because it's completely insane. Um, then you, then I have those experiences in the States or anywhere else that I've lived, you know? And, and so for me, that's worth the, uh, it's worth the challenges. And, um, yeah, it's a choice that I've actively made. It is something that my Nepali friends, you know, a lot of them, you know, think it's, it's funny because, you know, a lot of people in Nepal are doing everything they can to, 
travel abroad, you know, for opportunity. And, and the, you know, and I've sort of given up that life to, to be here. Right. But, but for me, it's, you know, I don't know, I guess one of the organizing principles of my life has been adventure. And I've have a base camp where adventure is always like right outside my front door and, and oftentimes even inside the front door, you know, like it's, it's just a cool and wild and energetic place to be. And, uh, I love it. No, it's great. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's great to hear that and, uh, hopefully I get to come and, uh, meet you there in person. Do you, do you guys have an office in Kathmandu where people can visit and stop by? Um, yeah, totally, totally. Um, we have an office in Jaudikel in like the southern southern part of the city. We have Dalbot every day at one o'clock and we always welcome guests to come and just hang out, learn more about what we do and share a meal with us and whatever. So you can get in touch with me via our website. Um, and uh, yeah, we're always, always looking to meet new friends. Great. And that's, uh, that's Z.org, right? D-Z-I.org. So yeah, that's I'll share these a uh, few links on our um, show notes on the website on, on kimkim.com slash podcast after the show. So people can check it out. But cool. uh, yeah, thanks for um, taking some time to be on the show. And uh, it's been really interesting hearing about uh, the work you guys are doing in the East and um, look forward to uh, catching up in person one of these days. Totally. Thanks, Alex. It's been, it's been great to, to connect. And uh, yeah, I do hope to, I hope we get to meet face to face soon.